good morning, St. George's. If you're visiting, I'm Ray David, RD. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's now time for you to open God's Word. Sorry, I was waiting for a woohoo. Yeah. All right. First uh, Kings chapter 2, I'll give you a moment to open there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you. It'll be a lot easier if you have it open. You can follow along. First Kings chapter 2. Now, this is our last sermon on this series as we've been moving through the life of David. And before we get into our passage this morning, let me just get us caught up. Okay, so we left off last Sunday with 2 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. We saw David fighting the wars against the Philistines and their giants. We saw how he did so vicariously through the younger men who had surrounded him and how that was a picture of aging well. As you move forward in the account of David, there are a few other things that happen at the end of his life, at the end of 2 Samuel, one of the most notable. His last real concrete act of implementation, he purchased a threshing floor and built an altar to the Lord God. And in doing so, he was offered that threshing floor for free. Perhaps you know the mic drop moment when David said, no, no, I'm going to pay for this threshing floor even though you've offered to me for free, he said, because I will not offer to my Lord that which cost me nothing. Think about that one in your own life. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. We're going to move forward to our passage today. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we're told of how Solomon rises to the throne of Israel to succeed his father, David. If you remember, Solomon is, in fact, the son of David through Bathsheba. And you remember all of that account and what had transpired. Okay, so now we get to 1 Kings chapter 2. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, what we have captured here in Scripture are the words of a dying man. His swan song, if you will. There are a couple of things I want us to draw from this passage. The first one is in verses 1 to the first half of verse 2. Listen to this. It says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded his son Solomon, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Look, friends, as we come to the end of David's life, David's about to die. And we are, in reading this, confronted with one of the greatest lies that we tell ourselves. We live our lives from day to day. It's not a, it's not a malicious lie. It's more like a, an insidious lie that we just sort of passively live into. We live as though we are never going to die. We hold that thought off, right? We... We live day to day, moment to moment, believing that things will always only ever go on the way that they are. This is one of the great tragedies of the human state. When I'm talking to people who find themselves in a really, really good season, they have the memory of a fruit fly. And they believe that that good season is going to go on and on forever and nothing will ever change. 
It's an equal tragedy when I talk to people who are in a bad season. And they find themselves in a difficult time. And, and they too believe that nothing is ever going to change. You see, this is part of what it means to be a human. Is that we're cursed with this short memory. Right? Short-sightedness. And rolled into this is this lie that we tell ourselves that we will never die. You know the colloquialism that there are two things that are certain. What are they? Death and taxes, especially on... No, I'm not going to say that. Perhaps you've heard the um, great Stoic saying, memento mori. Are you familiar with that? The Stoic philosophers would always say this, memento mori, remember that you will die. Remember that you are mortal. And somehow that might seem like a morbid thing to think about, right? We, we think, man, that's such a downer, but it's actually the opposite. The Stoics knew that it was by embracing your mortality, that your days were not going to just go on and on and on forever, that that was the only way that you could truly embrace and live and cherish the present moment. This awareness that you're going to die. Well, you see these old philosophers and these old um, divines, and they, would, they, they, they have etchings and, and, and paintings of them sitting in their offices, and on their desk they would have like a human skull. You think, man, that's so morbid. Why are they always so consumed with their death? Well, they weren't consumed with their death. They knew that an awareness of death was the only way to embrace life. Memento mori. So it's a, it's a worldly truth, right? It's a secular truism. Two things are certain, death and taxes. Even some wise philosophers have discovered God's general revelation and they've come to realize that by remembering your death, you live a better life. But more importantly, it's a biblical truth. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer to the Hebrews says to Christians through the ages, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that David's time was drawing near. And so if you've been tracking along with us over the last couple of months, you can feel the weight of that. Right? David is, in modern parlance, he's palliative, he's in hospice, whatever, you know, how do you want to frame it? Try to put it in a way that you can feel it. His time is drawing near. Verse 2, he tells his son and successor Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Listen, as we're getting into this text this morning, don't miss this first and important point. Even the mighty warrior king, even the man after God's own heart, even Israel's greatest king, David, dies. And so will you. We got we to gotta take a step back every once in a while 
And remember that deep inside of every human being is this countdown timer. Look, we were born with this. We were born with a countdown timer that ticks away the days and has an expiration date. That clock begins the moment you breathe your first breath, and someday it will click its last click. And, and too often, Christian men and women avoid that thought because it makes them anxious. Perhaps it makes them anxious because they wonder, how long will I live? Well, in fact, we don't know the answer to that question. None of us do. But as Christian men and women, we have good news. The good news is that the amount of clicks on that countdown timer is not just some random number. Your days are not subject to the fates. They're not subject to illnesses that come spontaneously upon you who knows how. The, the number of days on your countdown timer are not subject to random accidentality. Instead, as Christian men and women, we know that our days are numbered by the Lord. Now, you've got to press into this truth a little bit if you're going to find comfort. This means that not a single person who has ever lived has ever died a day early. Even when someone dies apparently young, we as Christians mistakenly call it an untimely death. Well, there's no such thing. We often say that all death is sad, but not all is tragic. You know, if someone lives to be a ripe old age and they die, it's sad, but it's not tragic. When someone dies at a young age, we say that it's tragic. But as Christians, we have to press into this deep faith and this deep trust in God's sovereignty and his providence. He numbers our days, and therefore, it is not tragic. No one dies a moment early. No one stays a day late. Now look, let's, let's make this very personal. How would you spend your day if you knew and truly embraced the fact that you were going to die? How would you spend this day? How would you spend this week? How would you spend this month if you truly believed that someday you were going to die, that every second, every moment, every day, you are getting closer to that day when you will breathe your last, you're going to die, how are you going to live? Well, you know, friends, one of the hardest and sweetest things about my vocation is that I get to visit people on their deathbed and there is a clarity that comes to these people when they know and they're confronted with the imminency of their own death. Now, in fact, none of us know when anyone's going to die, but if you're laying on the deathbed and your doctors are telling you it's close, you have a sense that it's coming soon. And this imminent death brings clarity and focus. 
In some cases, I've seen it bring a whole pile of regret. People lying in their deathbed and they look back over their life. They're confronted with the fact, I am about to die. They think back over their time on earth and they're filled with regret. It's, it's the most tragic thing I've ever seen in my life. But there are others. There are Christian saints of God that I get the chance to visit on their deathbed. In fact, just this past week, I went to go see Tom Wright. You guys know Dr. Tom? Been a part of our church since, like, I don't know, since St. Paul wrote Timothy. And Tom is one of the good ones. Now, I have to confess, over the years, I've visited Tom's deathbed about a half dozen times. Um, and he's always pulled through, so you never know. You never know. But I was visiting him this past week, and I said to him, Tom, um, you know, I read, I read scriptures to him. I prayed with him. I told him I loved him. And I said to him, Tom, what's next for you? And he sort of gasped a breath, and he said, R.D., I believe God will take me home. And he gasped another breath. And he smiled from ear to ear, and he said, God has been so good to me. Oh, that we would all come to that place where we're faced with imminent death, and we would have hearts that are filled with faith and thanksgiving at God's goodness, and not regret. Friend, think carefully. You will die. How are you going to spend your days? Well, it's a, a dreadful thought, you know, your own mortality. But maybe it's the best thought you've had in a long time. What else is going to rescue you from frittering away the days and the hours looking at Instagram and TikTok? What else is going to motivate you to move toward reconciling that relationship that has been broken for so long and you've been ignoring it because you know it's going to require the hard work of forgiveness, hum uh, humility, and reconciliation. But you've been putting it off. Someday you're going to die. Go deal with it. Let's keep pressing into this truth. I don't want to move too quickly past it. Because we don't take much time in the busyness of our lives for honest self-appraisal. Hard to say, but it's true. Friend, you are going to die. There is a God, and you will stand before him and give an account for your life. When you stand before God, what claim will you give to an eternal reward in heaven. Will you stand there in that moment and reflect on your life and try to paint a picture for God of all the good things you did? Okay, or maybe not even all good things, right? You're aware of some of the bad things, but you would paint a picture for God and say, but on the balance of things, I think I was more good than bad. 
Or maybe you would stand before God and say, well, not only on the balance of my own life, but God, I sure hope you grade on a curve and I'm like better than average, so doesn't that make the cut? And then God is going to tell you the words of Jesus that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. In other words, your good deeds amount to nothing because what you need is a perfect righteousness, a perfect score. Well, maybe you, you would stand there in that moment and you're trying to unpack all the good things that you did, but all you can actually think about is all the sin, all the bad things, all the reasons that you don't deserve heaven and that you fall short, and the, the weight of guilt and shame is piling on your shoulders. See, friends, we're all going to die. And even the very best life does not merit eternal heavenly reward. The biblical witness is clear. You need a savior. Look, Christian man or woman, scripture uses forensic courtroom language to describe this moment. You are going to die. You are going to stand before the judge. And the list of your sin will be read out. And you will stand under the weight of it and you will conclude for yourself that you deserve eternal hell and judgment. That that's just and fair. But then your advocate, your brother Jesus Christ, will step forward. And he will say, it's all true and more. But I paid for it in full on the cross. And it would be unjust to judge the same sin twice. You have a savior. Scripture also uses language that as a Christian man or woman, we are hidden in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. And that picture means that when you stand before God, you're going to die. You're going to stand before God. And when God looks at you, he's not going to see all of your sins and shortfallings and foibles. He's not going to see all of your evil and all of your guilt. God is going to look at you. You are hidden in Christ you are clothed in his righteousness. God looks at you and sees Jesus. There are two things I want to draw out of this before we move off these verses. The first one is that you and I, because we are going to die, we've been granted lives that are rich in meaning. Every moment of your life echoes with eternal importance. And the second thing is, you're going to die, but you have a Savior, and so death has lost its sting. Let, I want to press into that one just a little bit, okay? So this truth that you're going to die, but you have a Savior, and death has lost its sting. Let's consider that for a moment. There is a precise biblical theological difference between dying and death. 
We've already acknowledged that every single person begins the process of dying from the moment that they take their first breath. Every person, as we're sitting here right now, is engaged in the process of dying. But death, however, final eternal death, that is the punishment for unforgiven sin. We're told in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so, friend, while it is true that you are engaged in the process of dying, that right now as you're sitting here, you are, in fact, dying, when you turn to Jesus and you repent and you trust in him alone, you will never face death. Death is not the last word for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. It means that on the cross, Jesus died the death that is yours. The death that you have accrued over all of your years on earth as the rightful wages that you've earned. He died that death for you. And so although you may breathe your last, death has no sting. What lies for you beyond the grave is eternal joy reconciled to God. The wages of sin is something you'll never have to pay. Look, I, I want to move to our second point. <laughs> but before I do, if you're here this morning because you came with a friend, or if you're here this morning because you got dragged by your spouse, and you would say, Artie, I'm not really familiar with all these categories. If I were to die today, I don't know that I would be welcomed into heavenly reward. Don't let another moment pass. In fact, why don't we just bow our heads in prayer for a moment? You say, R.D., I know I'm going to die. I don't know if I would be granted heavenly reward. Then, friend, right now, confess before God what he already knows, that you are a sinner. Declare that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord and place your hope and trust in him. And so death loses its sting. Okay, second point, much, much quicker. All right, I know we got to get home and eat. Um, so David's dying. He's going the way of all the earth. And he says to his son, son Solomon, second half of verse 2, be strong and show yourself a man. He, with his dying breath, he's not only aware of the fact that he's going to die, but he wants better for his son. You see that in verses 2 to 4. And he defines better for his son as being a man. Be strong, be a man. And he defines being strong and being a man Look at verse 2. 
as keeping the charge of the Lord. Listen, if you're a Christian man or woman and you look ahead to that moment where you're going to be on your deathbed, what more could you want for your kids? That's the legacy and the charge that I want to leave to my son and my daughter. Point them towards godliness. And, and, and don't put it off, right? Don't put it off to the point you're like, well, on my deathbed, I'm going to give them this big speech. Yeah, but what if the big speech that you give them is completely disconnected from the life that you lived in front of them? It's not going to have any weight. Leave a godly heritage for your kids. All right, verses 5 to 9. Two things I want you to see in this chunk. The first one is that David in his dying moments misuses the gifts that God has entrusted to him. We've noticed over the last couple of months that David um, is a man that God has made strong for war. That's something God gave him. In Psalm 144, David recognized this and said, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. God made David strong. But you got to recognize, friends, that we can take God's good gifts and use them well, or we can take God's good gifts and misuse them to our own peril. So many times, David was a godly warrior he took this strength that God had entrusted to him and he slayed thousands of Philistines. He killed Goliath. He did all the things that trusting in the Lord God demanded of him. This good gift that God had given him was pointed towards virtue and goodness and righteousness and trusting the Lord. But now in his old age, he's a dying, spiteful old man. When Nee was reading it, and when I was reading it through the week, I wanted to scream out like, no, David, don't. Don't go there, right? Vengeance has turned him in on himself. It's true for all of us. That we all have a shadow side to us. That, that our greatest weakness is our greatest strength pointed in the wrong direction. Taking the good gift that God has given you and misapplying it or misusing it. David takes this strength for war that God has given to him to use to execute God's judgment in faithfulness and in his dying breath he misappropriates it toward vengeance. Think about this for a moment. What are the gifts that God has entrusted to you? You're really good at making money? You're really physically strong? Have you been granted a lot of wisdom? How are you using it? Are you using it in ways that would please the Lord God who gave you the gifts in the first place? Well, that's the first thing I want you to see. And the second thing I want you to see in this same passage, verses 5 to 9, that David issues these spiteful, vengeful, dying wishes to Solomon. 
In verses 5 to 9, there are two guys that stand out in particular. Did you notice them? Two guys that David on his deathbed just can't let it go, man. Right? They're still renting space in his head. They did him dirty, and he's going to do them wrong. Joab and Shimei. Now, Joab is a name that you might remember as we've been moving through David's account. He's David's nephew. He's the son of David's sister. He's also been the commander of David's armies. And David says that Joab deserves death because he avenged blood in a time of peace, right? That's sort of the pretext that David gives. It sounds like something just. But in verse 7, we catch a glimpse that it's not that at all. Look at verse 7. He says, oh, these other guys deal loyally with Brazilia and the Gileadite. And let them be among those who eat at your table. Okay, so he says, so he's saying like, take out Joab because he, um, he dealt in blood in times of peace. But these guys, be really good to them. Why? For such loyalty, they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So what's really going on here? David wants Solomon to believe that it's justice that he is meeting out against Joab because Joab like killed people in a time of peace. But really, David has never gotten over the fact that Joab killed Absalom. You remember as Absalom is fleeing and he's hung under the tree, it is Joab who runs him through with the spear, even though David said, deal gently with my son. It's vengeance. And then there's Shimei, verses 8 to 9. And here David is just being disingenuous, right? He's trying to find a workaround. He says, I made a vow to never kill him. But after I'm dead and gone, you know what to do. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And so David's saying, I will not kill him. I made a vow, but I'm going to make sure that he gets killed. How's that? Pretty unseemly. And so you might read that and think, gosh, both Joab and Shimei, they get what they deserve, right? They're, they're pretty rotten characters. But, but you've got to recognize, friends, that far too often we mistake justice for vengeance. Look, maybe it's true that no one in this room has ever sought vengeance to the point of murder or death. But we do it all the time in smaller, sometimes passive-aggressive ways. Your spouse disappoints you or hurts your feelings. And so you spend an hour, a day, a week giving them the cold shoulder. Withdrawing a little. Giving them what they deserve. Well, you think that that's justice, but it's actually just vengeance, right? It's, it's ugly. Shouldn't be doing that. Anytime you recognize vengeance as such... You see that it's unseemly and unbecoming of a Christian man or woman. And it is so too at the end of David's life. We read this vengeful instruction and we rightly wince. Or I hope we do. It struck me this week when I was preparing this passage that most of the movies and stories that we find so entertaining these days 
are dominated by vengeance. Have you noticed that? It's somehow vengeance has gone from being like culturally frowned upon and taboo to being something that's almost virtuous. We are so entertained by stories where people get their comeuppance, where they are hoisted on their own petard or they're slipping on their own bananas, to use a Mario Kart analogy. We love stories of vengeance, people getting it in the end. It seems fitting. In fact, I think one of the reasons that we are drawn to stories of vengeance is it's, it's a, a framework that we can employ to make sense of an unjust world. So don't get me wrong, vengeance is not a virtue, it's horrible, but sometimes we turn to it just to try to bring peace to our lives. You see wickedness, you see oppression, you see people abusing others, and, and you think, well, vengeance is, at least is going to make it all right and set it aright. You're going to get theirs. We even champion the cause of vengeance when it's someone else getting theirs but we all deeply know we may want others to get what they deserve, but God forbid we ever get what we deserve. Think about that with the account of David here at the end of his life. He, with his dying breaths, he's going to make sure that Joab and Shimei get away with nothing, that they get what's coming to them. Well, what if he'd really gotten what he deserved throughout all of his life? Pile of wickedness there. Look, if you're honest with yourself, you know the last thing you want is vengeance. You need mercy and grace. And so here in his dying moments, David causes us to long for something, actually for someone, better. When you read this account and, it, and you, read, you read vengeance at the end of his life and it seems spiteful and it seems petty and it just doesn't sit well with you, that's because God has given you a longing for David's greater son, for Jesus. Think about Jesus in his dying moments on the cross. Now, now look, in this moment, he is bearing in his body the sum total of all human evil, malevolence, and wickedness. He is facing down all of human hatred and the greatest miscarriage of justice ever carried out. He could have rightly looked down from the cross and looked through all of the ages to every person who ever lived and pronounced God's wrath on them. And that wouldn't have been vengeance, that would have been justice. Precisely for what they had done to him. And yet notice how he differs from David in his dying words. David says, give them the death that they deserve. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. David dies with vengeance. Jesus dies extending mercy to those who wronged him and amnesty to the very rebels who pierce him through with a spear. And so David dies. 
And make no mistake, he's achieved a lot. There have been moments in his life of heroic faithfulness to God and obedience, taking God at his word. But yet he dies having fallen short of accomplishing his greatest goal. You guys know what David's greatest goal was? To build the temple. He doesn't get to do it. David wanted to build a house for the Lord God in the very center in Jerusalem so that God's presence would be restored to his people. And we're told in 1 Chronicles 23 that David doesn't get to do that, and we're told why. Do you know why? Too much blood on his hands. That's what we're told. David's vengeance, his spite, his dying wish to have Joab and Shimei killed are indicative of how he's lived his entire life. He shed too much blood. And so he's held short of building the temple. But friend, even in this, we catch a glimpse of Jesus because Jesus is the temple of God. He is the manifest presence of God in the midst of his people. And Jesus neither demands nor takes blood and vengeance, even though we deserve it, and he would be just in judging so. Instead, he sheds his own blood. And in that, he is the, both just and the justifier. David dies in vengeance. Jesus dies in the ultimate act of mercy and grace for you and in your place. David is prevented from building the temple of God because he has bloody hands. Jesus, by his nail-pierced hands, is the temple of God. And he has restored God's presence to you and restored you to God's presence. He's God with us. And such is the problem of vengeance, you know? In one sense, you think, gosh, vengeance is unseemly. And you're right. Because whenever you try to carry out vengeance on your own, um, you are acting as though you are faultless. You're above the fray and you are able to judge and carry out just judgment. That's, that's what you're acting as though. But you know that you're not, right? So for the Christian man or woman, for David, vengeance should have been off the table, not even an option. Because in your relationships, you know that no matter how flat you squish the pancake, there's always two sides. David should not have been exacting his own vengeance because he was not perfect. Same for you. Another problem with carrying out vengeance is um, we're far too complicated creatures to ever be able to, just, to, to, to judge justly. If you're going to carry out justice, you have to be able to carry out a, a just verdict or a just edict. And the problem is the human heart is a rat's nest of selfishness, you know, motives that are good and bad, um, all kinds of complexities that we can never understand. It's called sin. So any time that we try to carry it out, it's just vengeful. That's why it's unfitting for a Christian man or woman. We leave vengeance to God. 
Here's the good news of this passage. God in Jesus has not dealt vengefully with you. He's made a way of amnesty so that you can be reconciled. David says of Joab, do not let his gray head go down in peace. And he says of Shimei, bring his gray head down with blood. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, we read the Bible and we know that there's a lot of years to come and a lot of ups and downs and some good kings and some bad kings, but eventually God's forever king, Jesus Christ, is coming. David is dead. Solomon takes the throne. Jesus is coming. That's the season that we're heading into in Advent to remember that Jesus, David's greater son, came and to remember that he will come again. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you that as Christian men and women, we have not only been set free from your vengeful wrath so we can face our own death without fear, we can face it unflinchingly, but we've also been set free from that undue burden of trying to Meet out justice with others. That's your prerogative, not ours. So I pray, God, in the same way that you have been merciful with us, that we would be merciful with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.